before we talk to RFK Jr., letting you know that I am going to be in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Warner Theater June 28th, 2024, assuming I don't die in childbirth. Then I will be in Las Vegas, Nevada, July 6th, 2024, performing at the Mirage. It will be all new material about how a vampire tore through my body. We'll see. Not sure. I'm taking some time off to write some brand new material for y'all. And then after that, I'm going to be in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, July 17th, 2024 at the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival. Bert Kreischer will also be there. I also have a new special out. It's on of.tv slash Whitney. Don't overthink it. OF period. TV slash Whitney. You're going to see my brand new stand-up special, Uncensored, free. Please enjoy. Bap, bap, bap. Oh, shalom. Here we go. Bap, bap, bap. It's a big day. Presidential hopeful Robert Kennedy Jr. is on the podcast. Look, I was going to do an open where I was like defensive, like, I know you guys may have read that he did this and I get up and that. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do a big defensive open because that would imply that we don't have dope listeners of this podcast. Okay. You guys get it. You want to hear anti-establishment, anti-corruption, smart people talk. I don't think any of you believe in silencing presidential candidates, right? You're not a bunch of snitchy dorks. So I'm not going to do that. But if you are listening and you're like, RFK has spread some vaccine, methamphetamine, okay. Even if that's true, let's say it's true. How do you know? How do you know? How do you, but you, this drives me nuts. Someone will be like, he said the vaccines caused the vaccination. And you're like, what? did you have to step away from your microscope to make this point? Like how, how do you know Dale, who works in marketing at Dick's Sporting Goods? How would you know, Amber, who's never read a book in her life? Really? You're going to you're going to shut down this conversation at a party, Taylor, who fell off a bird scooter last week, high on edibles. So you're the authority on vaccines. Like when I ask people like about this and they'll be like, no, 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 no. I went on The New York Times. The New York Times told me the New York, the gay blog. (laughs) I mean, it's just you trust the news site who on his Twitter feed will post the death toll of children in Gaza. Then two tweets later, we'll post about a new twist on avocado toast. Like, I don't I'm not trying to come for The New York Times, but they did just hire a journalist who praised Hitler. I'm just I, I, I don't know. Okay, you're right. I'm not trying to come for The New York Times. All right. It's just that all of these news organizations are funded by the very corporations he criticizes. So it's all a little fishy, if you ask me. It's like airport sushi level fishy. So I just, I feel like who cares what you, like, be honest. Just let's be honest with ourselves. No one knows anything. Okay. You you know this is my forever take on everything. And you, if you just listen to like sound bites, you would think that RFK says like... This vaccines. No, he totally dimensionalized this argument. He did say that in 1989, vaccine schedule increased, but he also said there was a ton of other variables. Cell phones started, Roundup chemicals were introduced, GMOs. He says that it could be a bunch of variables in terms of the autism thing. Okay. 1989 was a year where a bunch of new stuff came into the mix, could have caused an increase, could have been anything. Maybe Bill Cosby's roofies got into the water supply. 
It could have been anything. He's not saying it's that. It's just, I know, it's hard to listen to long conversations. It's hard to listen to anything they can't fit into a TikTok in a minute. I get it. But there's too many variables to know. And don't be, don't blame me. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, blame your simulator who has been called to dinner by his mom and who dropped the remote from the years 2021 to 2023. Hopefully he comes back to the couch soon and doesn't get distracted by the pop-up ad on the screen for a flashlight. We might lose another couple years. <laughs> and I'm just saying, if you agree, disagree with RFK, you have to admit that it is cool that he's been going after corporations for like 40 years or something. Uh, he's the only person with the audacity to say that Big Pharma should not advertise on television, which I agree it is a wild conflict of interest. But more importantly, their commercials suck. They make shitty commercials. Big Pharma commercials, first of all, they're like three minutes long. And why am I watching a white woman in a vest in a canoe? Like if your medication is going to make me want to be a canoe person, that is the number one problematic side effect of this pill. Like hair loss, low libido, I can handle that. But if this medication makes me want to get into a canoe, I mean, every one of these commercials are insane. Like, according to Big Pharma, <laughs> everyone who takes Valtrex ends up hysterically laughing on a hike. Like, why is everyone in every pharma ad just outside maniacally laughing? Like, get inside. Like, I just cured my rosacea. Now I've got all this free time to go out and get Lyme disease and push my wife off a cliff. <laughs> just stay inside, everyone. Go back to studying the vaccine. Since everyone's a scientist now, <laughs> go back to your vaccine research because Twitter needs you. Anyway, I don't I don't normally weigh in on politics and don't panic. I'm not going to weigh in on politics on um, the podcast with RFK Jr. We kind of talk about, you know, it doesn't get too into the weeds, but I do think it is safe to say that the two party system is broken. Like, I, I mean, a, a qualm that people have with him right now is they'll be like, he's going to take votes from Democrats and Republicans. Is that bad? Maybe they need some competition. Maybe they need to step up. Maybe a third party person will make them have to actually run candidates who aren't 200 years old. RFK is going to steal votes. OK, like you mean some voters aren't going to have to choose the least worst also, why do they why do they even call it a Republican Party or Democratic Party? There's not a lot to celebrate right now. <laughs> they should call it like the Democratic cult and the Republican hoedown, debutante. I don't know. I just I don't understand why our only options for presidents are either the tannest people on earth or the palest people on earth. All the Republican candidates, they look like shiny Hannibal Lecter, and the Democrats all look like vegans who have scurvy. Is can anyone just be in the middle? I'm a, I guess I'm a middle person now. I'm in the middle, and that's not a cop-out. It's not fun to be in the middle, okay? It's like being the middle person and a human centipede. Either way, it sucks shit. Also, when it comes to, like, the left and the right, like, you know all of the right-wing politicians and left-wing politicians are friends, right? Like, that's the thing no one talks about is that the politicians on both sides, they live in the same places. They have vacation homes in the same places. They're all in the Hamptons or in Connecticut. Like a huge Democratic politician lives right next door to a huge Republican. They share a gardener that they both pay $3 an hour. They get each other's Amazon packages like Nancy Pelosi's like, hey, Donald, I got your Sally Hansen self-tanner again. Do you want me to just throw it over? You know what? Let me text Bezos right now. That's to tell us to stop mixing up our packages, that silly goose. And if you have the formaldehyde I ordered, can you 
let me know because I need to reapply it soon. Don't want to start disintegrating before this hot stock tip comes in. P.S. Hey, make sure to invest in Hewlett Packard. Trust me. <laughs> they just made a 3D printer that prints babies. They loan each other boats when they need to kill the spouse. They share a skippy for their boats. They'll be like, are you using our skippy this weekend or can I get the skippy? I'm just saying. They're all friends, okay? But they all, right and left, seem to be mad at Robert Kennedy Jr., which makes me think he's doing something right. <laughs> Is that a psycho thing to think? I just, I just feel like most Americans have to choose the least worst candidate now and... Also, politics is like, it's just become sports. It's like sports for dorks at this point. It's like us versus them. Like, it's like if you're a Jets fan and you meet a Patriots fan, automatically you're mad at them. It's like with the left and the right. It's like, he's a Republican. Is that really how you define a person by their political party? I don't do that. I don't. I define people in a way that actually dimensionalizes them, not based on whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, based on whether they have a Samsung or an iPhone. I don't really care how you vote. As long as we have the same color bubble, we're cool. So just for context, he did come into my house and he actually said something that no one's ever said to me that's come to my house. He was like, how come you don't have any family photos anywhere? <laughs> He's like, you don't live here, do you? Why? He was like, is this, he was like, is this like a stage house? like, no, this is my house. He's like, there's no family photos. Is that not the saddest thing you've ever heard in your life? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what to say. I like, was speechless. I was like, no, but we have, to, I have like pots on shelves. Like what goes to family photos? Like what is love? Like what is a family? Like I, I was at a loss. Like where do family photos go? I feel like they go to piano. I don't have a piano. Like, should I have photos of, I mean, everyone's either dead or suing me. You know well, what I mean? Should I frame lawsuit letters? Should I frame? Should I, <laughs> I guess I could have my mom's urn out. Yeah. I would match all the other pots. He seemed really bummed. <laughs> it seemed, he seemed kind of like, like, he's like, are you okay? <laughs> like, he's like, this is the loneliest house I've ever seen is basically what he's. <laughs> I would imagine any, anyone who grew up a Kennedy is just overwhelmed with family photos. On I the wall. bet. I bet. Yeah. We, we don't do a lot of photo evidence in our family. We don't, we don't want anyone to know that we cross paths. We don't want any proof. This is all like. Like evidence in future lawsuits. We don't do a lot of pictures. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess I never thought about that until now. It was the first thing he noticed. Well, the first thing he wanted to talk to you about. I know. He's yeah. like, why do you have any family photos? I was like, because I, what, then it's going to take up all the space and I can't have the dog figurines and the David Bowie figurine and where are the horse statues gonna go <laughs> but this is cluttered up with a bunch of people that love me you're like what 13 year old girl do you know that has family photos all over the room <laughs> it was kind of heartbreaking um yeah i guess he also has like a hundred cousins yeah you know yeah their family and their family history is yeah every that's their whole yeah. thing is the photos that reinforce the dynasty my family's not big on admitting we know each other or cavort in any capacity we don't we don't frame photos we frame each other 
<laughs> oh gosh. I just I felt so bad for him, like that he had to point it. Like he was just like, should I tell her? <laughs> he was he was totally just like flabbergasted. I've never I've never seen someone have that kind of reaction to my house before. He was like trying to say, like, are you okay? <laughs> but he was just like, where are the family photos? <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Does anyone want to send me some photos? You know what? I could just buy frames and just leave, you know, it always comes with a photo of someone. They seem like nice people. Yeah. Like, it's like a black and white photo. I'll just like get some photos from like the Hallmark store or what's it called? The uh, moments. Precious moments. <laughs> Tender moments. I don't even know where to buy. Aaron know, Brothers. Aaron Brothers. I don't even know where to buy photo frames to put photos in. But so um, if you would like to DM me some photos of your family and Photoshop me in, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> so we don't have to weird anyone else out because I, I am in the market for a family mm -hmm. um, so that I can put photos around my house so I don't have to see the sadness on someone. Else. I mean, it did bum him out. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. Okay, here he is, RFK. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Why? Because, well, I host it. <laughs> I can't say enough good things about what therapy has done for me in my life. I literally wrote a book about it, okay? I had a condition called codependence where I used to waste a lot of my time doing things out of obligation. I felt guilty saying no to people. I confused love and pity. I felt guilt when I stood up for myself. I was scared of authority figures. I tried to make other people, you know, like me instead of just focusing on liking myself. In short, I was a wreck, folks. I also put other people's needs before my own. How do you think I got pregnant? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was always taking care of everybody else, but not taking care of myself. I wasn't eating well. I was texting and driving because I just had to text back that friend who was breaking up with her married boyfriend for the fourth time. It was all just nonsense, I tell you. Therapy helped me realize that I got these behaviors honestly. Therapy helped me rewire my brain, helped me make better decisions. And now I have six comedy specials and a kid on the way. You too can have it all, folks. Holidays are coming up, and that is that is really when things get a little bit wobbly, even if you have done a lot of therapy. You know, grief comes up, pressure to socialize, give gifts to people that I don't even like, perfectionism around the tree. But look, I, I am still at the point where I let people come over to help decorate the tree, and as soon as they leave, I redo the whole thing. That will never change. That is just who I am. No amount of therapy is going to make me let people... Do a sloppy-ass tree. But I am going to double down on therapy this holiday season as a gift to the people I love. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Whitney today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Whitney. I do think this house is unusual because you don't live here, right? I live here. Oh, you do? Yes, sir. There's no, like, personal pictures or photos or... Of the house, you mean? Oh, you. In, in the house. Yeah. You're, do I'm... you have a family? Or... <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't even put that together. You know, that is really sad. It seems you... like a show house. It does but, seem yeah. staged, doesn't like it? You, uh, yeah, like a stage that... 
Yeah, it's so. Like, I mean, we're but we're on opposite. You ends want of the me to come and help you? You have a thousand <laughs> photos, I bet, on every piano in your. Well, house. I I have a store because Cheryl doesn't like clutter, and we don't. We although we have some big walls in our house, we don't have like I had. Um, I have frames, signatures from all the presidents in different frames. And, you know, stuff like that. My family stuff, hundreds and hundreds of photos. But almost none of it is up at my house because uh, Cheryl does not like clutter. It's, I do have a, a complicated relationship with my family. Lost both parents uh, relatively recently. But, yeah, I think I tried to do sanctuary vibe in there. And then this is my Pee Wee's Funhouse chaos. Yeah, this room looks nice. It's, it's always good to have, like I feel like, one room to put all your clutter in. It's just the clutter room. and But yeah, no, you really did just make me take a good hard look at myself <laughs> on that. But we, because I know you have a heart out and I um, do not want to waste your time, but just want to start with saying, you know, you've been doing a lot of podcasts. I'm sorry about these comedians. I am very, I apologize. <laughs> I had a great, I mean, <laughs> Tim Dillon and uh, Theo, mm -hmm. I know you're buddies with him. Good buddies. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and Bobby Lee. Bobby Lee, which by the way, I listened to it last night just to be like, let me make sure I'm not asking any of the same questions. Yeah. I, I, and that's not a good thing to listen to. And then I come up at the end. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm friends with Whitney Cummings. We show each other our genitals. I was like, wait, hold on. That has never <laughs> happened, first of all. I'm, can I hire you to sue him for me? <laughs> that is blasphemy, <laughs> and I will not participate. Oh, I can't believe we went to the same elementary school. So weird. But of course, decades apart. In Georgetown, I went to Holy Trinity, uh, Our Lady uh, of Victory, and then graduated from St. Andrews. I went to Our Lady of Victory. Wouldn't it be weird if some of the teachers that I had... Miss yes. Cool again? Was she still there? Oh, I don't think I don't <laughs> think so. But that would be such a trip. Yeah, um, yeah. I use. I was at that point in my life. I was really. I would say non-compass mentis. I, I think I was so ADHD that I could not even understand what you know. Uh, it just sounded like audible chaos <laughs> coming out of the teachers' mouths, and I would. <laughs> Sit there and you could look at the MacArthur Reservoir and yep. there were black vultures and turkey vultures and herring gulls and all of these animals that I was interested in. And I would just sit there all day and watch those birds. And uh, and I was, I think I was the lowest person in my class until I started taking drugs. And I, you know, I think I was self-medicating. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the top of my class. In ninth grade, I started, uh, you know, self-medicating. And I went, and I, I, suddenly I could find, I could sit still, and Can I, I could concentrate what? with heroin. With that, okay, nice. Nice, right? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I was just, I'm listening to, but, uh, there's a Harvard scientist who talks about microdosing heroin, and it really helps with his focus. <laughs> that's not a good idea. No, it's a for sure not. It also doesn't last. <laughs> The microdose part. It made me, it allowed me to focus. It allowed me to, it calmed down my mind and I could read for the first time. And then I just became a, you know, voracious reader. Um, but uh, before that, I had like a squirrels, you know, in my head. And it's fascinating because I, you know, I'm almost eight months pregnant now. And uh, sorry, I was moving a little slow this morning trying to get you, you in. Oh, well, you look <laughs> very svelte. And so I don't want to ask you any questions that you've been asked a million times. Um, 
can I start on a little bit of a positive note? Like, can I just say, what is America doing well right now? <laughs> Long beat. <laughs> well, I, I would, I mean, there are certain areas that I think we still are kind of world leader on. Um, I, we probably build the best aircraft in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we, I think we still do innovation better than anybody else. You know, Silicon Valley and Boston and these innovation centers where you have this extraordinary, very, very Americanized entrepreneurial ferment. Um, so we're on the cutting edge. We don't build the, the microchips, but we design them and we do all of that kind of, you know, innovation is done in America. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things with me happening kind of on the margins um, that are directly related to our, to the freedom of this country. You know, one of those is integrative medicine and functional medicine. There's just this, this explosion of innovation and knowledge. And again, it's not coming from the established institutions. It's coming from, you know, people. Mm-hmm very smart people who are now, who have chosen to have been relegated to the margins and are figuring out ways to heal disease and to avoid disease and to build your immune system and, you know, to restore health. The same thing is happening in regenerative agriculture. And, um, you know, you're seeing these, again, it's not coming from the centralized institutions, which are all broken. Mm-hmm. It's coming from individuals operating outside of the system. And this is something you won't see in China um, because of the way that, you know, they don't have that kind of freedom. Mm-mm. So people don't feel like they have permission to think for themselves and to do something unusual and to break down barriers. And I think we still have that in this country. And I think it's all ultimately that's going to be the key to our recovery as a nation and as a moral center in the world. I've seen Shark Tank. I know all about this. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Mark Cuban. <laughs> you know, I see a lot of people sort of online and memes talking about sort of the Constitution and, you know, it was written at a time where things were different and da, da, da. If you could magically just wave a wand and add or amend an amendment or change the Constitution, what would you do? I, I guess I'd put a little addendum on every amendment saying uh, <laughs> there's no pandemic exception. There's no yep. exceptions. You know, I, I think we saw that, I mean, ultimately the Constitution only works if people believe in it mm-hmm. and in the, uh, and see it as a, you know, as, as a moral milestone, a moral document. And, uh, you know, I think the shocking thing in the, during the pandemic was how people were willing to just, um, you know, all of the, all of the, the, the uh, amendments basically came under attack. The First Amendment, you know, we saw the censorship for the first time. Government opera, you know, ordained censorship. We then saw free, freedom of worship. You know, we saw every church in the country close for a year. And also something that I just must say, self-censorship, I think, also counts. Just this this fear of if I say something. Oh, yeah. Well, that happened, too. Mm-hmm. That's not actionable. Yes, well, right. It's actionable when the government, when the White House is telling the, you know, Twitter, you censor Robert Kennedy or you censor Dr. McCulloch or you censor Dr. Corey, or we're going to pull your Section 230 immunity and destroy your company, which is exactly what happened. And, cool. You know, anybody who doubts that description should go look at Judge Doughty's decision, 155 page decision of, you know, my case is now in the front of the U.S. Supreme Court. 
Um, it's called uh, Missouri versus Biden and Kennedy versus Biden. They're consolidated. Oh, that's never happened before. And then they went after freedom of religion. They closed all the churches, no scientific citation, no public hearings, no environmental impacts. They got all of the kind of the indicia of democracy were simply abandoned. And then they went after the third part of the social of the First Amendment, which is so, um, which is freedom of assembly. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they mandated social distancing, and they they um, they began punishing people who were demonstrating, et cetera. And they went after uh, uh, Fifth Amendment property rights. They shut down every business in our country, three point three million businesses, with no due process, no just compensation. They went after jury trials. Seventh Amendment guarantees jury trial in any matter to any citizen of the United States cannot be denied the right of a jury, of a trial before the jury of his peers in cases or controversies exceeding $25. That's what the amendment says. That's it. There's no pandemic exception. And yet, you know, anybody who is involved in a countermeasure, they got rid of jury trials if they, no matter how negligent they are, no matter how badly injured you are, no matter how reckless their behavior, no matter how toxic the ingredients or shoddy they're testing, you can't sue them. Mm. And um, so, and then they got rid of the Fourth Amendment prohibitions against warrantless searches and seizures. Um, You have to give your medical information before you go into a building, a public building or whatever. That's never happened before. So although, and by the way, the framers of the Constitution knew all about epidemics. Mm. There were two epidemics during the American uh, Revolution. One of them, a malaria epidemic that decimated the armies of Virginia. And there was a smallpox epidemic that, that, that absolutely froze the army of New England at a very critical time. In fact, at that time, Benedict Arnold conquered Montreal. Oh, he made it into the inner city. He took the city. We owned it for a day, but he mm-hmm. couldn't hold it because his troop strength was so depleted by smallpox. Wow. He had to retreat out of the city. Wow. And otherwise, Canada today would be part of the United States. And all the framers knew that. Wow. So, and they and and between the end of the revolution and the ratification of the Bill of Rights, there were epidemics in every city. There were smallpox, cholera. Malaria epidemics, uh, yellow fever that killed tens of thousands of people. Almost everybody who saw, who was part of the Constitutional Convention, their lives and their families were were touched um, by those epidemics. But they and just yet, didn't put it in writing. And yet they didn't say. Well, they didn't say. They didn't put an epidemic exception next to you know on anything. They didn't mm-hmm. say these these amendments only are are good. <laughs> Unless, um, unless there's an epidemic. Unless Bill Gates predicted an epidemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this makes me so angry when I hear about this. And then I go, okay, I'm just, I got to vote. I got to vote. I just got to inform myself. Something I really bump on is the fact that our um, election day is not a holiday. Um, is that something that you think, it, who does it serve? Why does it serve my, sorry to be tinfoil hat guy. I just go, oh, great. Poor people can't vote. People that don't have cars can't vote. People that have jobs and can't afford babysitters can't vote. Um, should voting be a national holiday? I would say that. I haven't thought about it, but I would say that's a good idea, of course. It's wild to me that it's not, and it seems like it serves people who uh, can afford to take the day off or people that, you know, yeah, have yeah, no, it's a good point. basically more resources. And um, what about um, age limits on the Supreme Court? Is that, Am I ageist? 
I, I'm not for age limits. I think, you know, you might have competency tests or something mm-hmm. like that, but, um, you know, age limits, because I know people who are 90 years old and who have the cognitive capacity and the fluidity yeah. and lucidity of people who are in their 50s. Mm. So it's really, uh, you know, to case me, it's more, it, that's a really individualized. Yeah, and and I you know can't some... just say, I mean, and, you know, people who try to impose age limits. So there's a lot of seniors in this country who vote and they're, and, and they're offended by it because a lot of them are like, I'm completely okay. Why are you going to make a law against me? Totally, right? totally. So it's like your driver's license. When you get to an age, you have to start getting tested. Yeah. It's more like but, the, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's more, um, you know, I work in, um, the, you know, rescuing exotic animal trafficking stuff and there's something um, called founder syndrome. This God. Complex. Yeah, I know what that is. No, I- <laughs> <laughs> where sort of the longer you've been in power, sort of the power corrupts your brain over long periods yeah. of time. It's not the age itself. It's kind of more sort of the power. At the end of the day, there was a great article in The Atlantic about what power does to the brain. Um, can I ask you real quick, just in terms of um, you've been so open about your sobriety and so many people are so grateful uh, for that. Um, as I said, I'm in a 12 step program and um, in our 12 step programs, we do something called a 10th step every night where we go do our inventory of what we're resentful for, maybe where we owe an apology if it's due, um, uh, where we need to forgive somebody. What's coming up in your 10th step these days in terms of resentments that you might need to turn over? I'm pretty good about not hanging on to resentments. You'd have to be, though. Yeah. I mean, I learned that really on it. You know, there's, there's two ways that most people process uh, conflict and anger. And one of those ways is to internalize it mm-hmm. and to uh, turn it into a resentment. And, the, and that is like swallowing poison and hoping someone else will die. It's corrosive. And the other way is to externalize it, turn it into anger or rage, which then spreads it like, a, you know, a, a, like a ripples all across the globe. You get angry, you kick the dog, the dog bites somebody else. Mm-hmm. You get angry at your wife, she, you know, she bitches at somebody at work. And it, it, it ripples across the globe. So neither of those is a good way to do it. And I, I think, the technique for handling anger has to be learned by most people that it doesn't come across. It's counterintuitive, which is that you go to the source of your anger and then you explain how you feel about it, mm-hmm. you know, without pointing the finger, without using the word. I tell people, don't use the word you. Don't say you did this to me. Just say that encounter we had, um, here's how I processed it. You know, my feelings were hurt from it or, or something, but without telling that person, you did this to me. Yep. So you say what you mean without saying it mean. And, uh, you know, and it's all technique and it's something that you have to learn, but I have learned that over, you know, 40 years and of, you know, practicing. Those. So I clear up my, I clear up my, um, you know, my anger, any instance of that very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I won't go to sleep at night holding resentment against somebody. Or or when I, sometimes in the middle of the night, I'll, I'll, I'll have like almost like a dream state. Or I wake up in the middle of the night and I go into this kind of contemplative twilight zone, you know, when you're, when you're trying to get back to sleep. 
And I feel like God talks to me in those moments. And that during those moments, I'll think of something. Oh, you said this to this guy today, mm-hmm. and you were joking, but he probably took it, you know, yep. probably heard mm-hmm. it. As soon as I figure that out, I make a call and I get rid of it. Yep. You know, I neutralize it because I don't want to walk around with any of that stuff. Could have handled um, that better. Yeah. <laughs> Hope that did. Yeah, I mean, it is such a miracle. Um, um, it's a miracle too because you know I, another technique is to pray for somebody that you um, that injures you and I learned this really on in, in um in you know in dealing with road rage <laughs> oh that if somebody gives you a finger on the road I mean I, I remember a time when I turned my car around and chased the guy <laughs> for 12 miles from White Plains to, to, <laughs> to summer or Salem exit on uh, with uh, no uh, plan, no real plan. No, but then I got into <laughs> physical conflict with him on the top of the exit ramp when he got off. But then I go home and I'm saying I'm, I'm driving home and I'm late for the appointments that I was supposed to do that day, and I have this rage in my head, and the guy is living in my head rent free, mm-hmm. and that stranger now controls the rest of my day, and you know controls my happiness and my you know capacity to to maximize my impact on the world and and my my feeling of you know, of well-being and all that and so i somebody told me when somebody does that to you on the highway or they cut you off or they did something to immediately just say a prayer for them and it was like a miracle cuz it just went away and i i'm sitting there saying that's, that's like a drug. You just do it and it goes away mm-hmm. and now you don't have to do anything. Now, you know, I'm in control of my own life. I don't, I'm not handing control over to a total stranger. So that really helped me. And then in larger things, um, I had somebody who was a close friend of mine a couple of uh, years ago who did, who I helped this person in ways that were, you know, I, I literally spent a year of my life um, doing something for this person that got him out of prison. And uh, and that person did something to me that was, you know, that was not good. And I have not spent one minute feeling resentful or angered against my, I should, I have a right to. I haven't because I've been able to manage my, you know, I manage my anger in that way. And I'm not, you know, I, I feel very loving towards them and very forgiving and, um, and very, and I, every day I spend a little time praying that good things happen to them. And what that does for me is it makes it that I never walk around with that bitterness inside of me. Because whatever he did was ultimately self-harm because he lost you. Whatever it was, the only way it can really hurt me is if I allow it to. Mm -hmm. And if I just send good energy toward him, um, then I, you know, it's, uh, you know, then it it has no impact on me. And it's it's really been, to me, it's it's kind of like a hidden accomplishment Mm -hmm. for me because I was able to process this whole event without ever experiencing resentment or anger something that um you know sounds like a platitude but they really helped me in program to simplify the complicated brain of we forgive others not because they deserve forgiveness but because we deserve peace yeah so it's well that's a really good way you just said what i said in 10 minutes <laughs> i should have just said that can i write that down <laughs> 
know if you guys noticed this or not, but I have recently become a fashion icon. I don't know. I've, I've decided to become the Jackie O of comedy and pair my vintage gas station horse shirts with some very chic basics. I feel like a lot of brands I used to like for simple basics went insane and started bedazzling everything and losing their minds. So now I really only shop at flea markets or Quince because Quince has these I, I can't even tell you these like amazingly classic styles that make you seem like you have way more class than you actually do. And suddenly I feel like I'm Shiv from Succession. I'm in a creamy taupe these days. I'm I'm dabbling with a rustic brown, a steal your man, Heather Gray. Try and stop me. You can't. Quince offers a range of high quality items with prices within reach, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters from $50, washable silk tops, washable silk. You heard that. Not high maintenance. You got to take it to the lady to wash for you silk tops. Washable silk tops, dresses, cotton sweaters, and cozy pants. You know me. I also love gift giving. It's actually like a mental problem, but it can really add up. That's why this holiday season, I'm shopping at Quince. Quince is my go-to place for luxury essentials and affordable prices for everyone on my list. Me particularly, I'm getting everybody luggage, travel stuff. They have the cutest like fanny packs and like roller bags. Best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands so you're not getting conned or scammed by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes on the savings to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You're not going to get your item and then have a bunch of children's sweat and blood on it. I love this about Quince. I got this... Oh, it's so cute. It's an eggshell white cashmere button-down sweater I've been pairing with this sundress that I had to just pull out of the washing thing because I've been wearing it forever. Look at how cute this brown is. This sundress, okay, I'm a total 90s dream girl all of a sudden. Look at this. I'm Rinona Ryder in Reality Bites meets Liv Tyler in Empire Records. Ugh, in my vanilla milkshake colored sweater that is bringing all the boys to the yard. And by yard, I mean YouTube comments section being like, wait, is Whitney my dream girl? And the answer is yes, I actually am. I'm classy, yet not intimidating. I'm fashionable, yet not desperate because I was smart enough to shop at Quince. Get affordable luxury for everyone on your list with Quince. Go to quince.com slash Whitney for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E. Here's the label. Look how cute on my Quince dress. Quince, look how adorable. Quince.com slash Whitney to get free shipping and 365 day return. Sorry about the burping, but I'm classy, remember, because I wear beautiful brown tones. Quince.com slash Whitney. Selling a little or selling a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However, you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is where you are going to go grow. Shopify is where to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered 
all-star. So what I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify is a total game changer because the interface is so easy. Even an idiot like me could figure it out. Y'all know that I have a book that I wrote. It's easy not only to sell the book, but also to update buyers with information about the book being late because, I don't know, some nightmare happens and then I can send a message thanking them. It also tells me who bought the book and where so I can start seeing patterns and change the way that I market. So it's like if a bunch of people are buying in Toledo this book, I go like, I should maybe go on tour in Toledo because all these people bought my book. There's so much feedback. There's such a way to take your business to the next level. It's genius. I love it. I don't know why you'd ever use anything else for something as important as your bid nath. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and three of my favorite brands and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every Every step of the way because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Whitney, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Whitney now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Whitney. Love you. When I first started going into the rooms, I was like, oh, God, I don't need this. These people are depressed. I'm too busy for that. You know, whatever my ego really trying to find ways that I didn't need to be there. Oh, I already get that. Da, da. But then I heard um, one thing um, said by um, a brilliant guy still in my life. He got up and he said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is the war is over. The bad news is you lost. <laughs> and it just it's exactly what I needed to hear, exactly the way I needed to hear it, perfectly succinct. And it just made me surrender. You know, yeah. I was fighting the God stuff. I was fighting the steps. I'm too busy for this. Was there anything that just was perfectly said that made things click for you? <laughs> I mean, I said this the other day in an interview that one of the things that, um, that uh, really helped me was uh was a line from isaiah that said be still and know that i am god which um because my life was all activity and no progress i mm. was you know i was always i was ambitious and i was energetic and i put you know huge energy into my life and you know i described myself as being a giant truck stuck in a ditch with the wheels spinning and the you know headers smoking and the pipes flames coming up pipe and roaring noise and going nowhere you know and then um i you know i i learned to be still that i don't have to fix everything that if if i don't if i i don't have i you know i i don't have to reach outside of myself to fix things that are you know going wrong inside of me that are you know the parts of me that are you know not feeling good right now I don't have to go out and fix that. I can just be still and that it will pass like a storm cloud, like lying on a hill and watching dark cloud come and a white cloud or whatever. And that if I can sit still with that stuff, that God does the hard work mm. and be peaceful, be filled with, um, with uh, just with with peace and a and faith that it's going to be handled yeah. it's not my job yeah. it's it's when people struggle with the god thing and it I, makes me a lot more efficient and effective as a human being being able to be still um and you know there's a story about abraham lincoln who was asked about 
how he would cut down. He was the rail splitter, so he was, you know, handy with an axe. And he was asked about what he would do if he had five hours to cut down a, an oak, a giant oak tree. And he said he'd spend four hours sharpening the axe. And to me, that's a metaphor for, you know, being in a good spiritual condition. If I'm in a good spiritual state, I am much more effective as a human being. It, it, it not only takes that knot out of my stomach of anxiety that I was born with and that empty hole inside of myself that I was trying to fill with drugs and sex and risky extreme behavior and all that. It makes me peaceful inside, but also it somehow alters the universe so that my luck changes, the lights turn green, the parking place is open, and, uh, the, you know... Uh, people call when they're supposed to. There's a synch- I see all these little synchronicities happening around me, these little coincidences and weird little miracles that make me that feel like God reaching in and touching me and saying, you know, I got you. So it just, it makes me such a magic trick. It's yeah. such a magic trick. It's like, you know, when I'm working <laughs> with people that are sponsees that the God thing, I don't believe in God. It's like, okay, you don't have to believe in God yet. Just, Believing in God, let's just start with the fact it just means you're not God. Let's yeah. just start that you're not. And you just see them go, oh, thank God. You know, like, I don't have to be in control of everything. I can just be in the passenger seat and, like, let the good things come. And yeah. things that don't come aren't for you. It's like the rejection's God's protection. And when you start seeing that and looking at it that way, you can't. There's nothing bad can ever happen to you because you can just sublimate it into something positive. Or yeah, and that's, that's the trick is that. You know, the trick that God has is taking chaos and, uh, you know, and bringing order out of it. Mm. And each one of us is little, you know, our sort of each, our magical ability is to do that in life, to try to, whatever we encounter, whatever bad thing we encounter, to try to make something good out of it, to process in the way that, you know, you can be of use to other people that you can, that you know how to console people that you know what to say, that you can have, that you gain wisdom from it. The, the word wisdom means the knowledge of God's will. Mm. And it means that you have an instinctive knowledge about what is right and what's, what's wrong and how to turn, you know, bad things into something good for somebody else. And looking at it as practice. So if you didn't get what you wanted, practicing patience. You didn't get, you know, this is uncomfortable. Today's my opportunity to practice tolerating discomfort. Like you can sort of, step three, you spin everything into something that benefits you. Yeah. It's like the ultimate magic trick. Um, You mentioned, um, you know, the concept of getting internal needs met with external things. I feel like as, you know, someone that is, you know, has so much alcoholism and addiction in my family and I look ahead and I look at all these new addictions popping up, which is just the whack-a-mole, you know, um, with social media, with self-righteous indignation on Twitter. You know, when people go on Twitter and they're like, everyone's so divided. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, there was a civil war at one point in this. We've been divided before, you know, um, maybe we just see it more than ever. Who knows? But when I see negativity online, I just see people that are addicted to self-righteous indignation, addicted to social media, you know? Um, it, what is, if any, the government's role in addiction recovery? You've talked about it a little bit, but it's something that, you know, I worry big pharma is just going to come in and be like, we have the addiction pill. We've got the, you know, they're already kind of doing it, but is it? Yeah, that's what they're already doing. They, I mean, they've turned a lot of the rehab industry you know that has has become predatory because of that because it's been captured by pharma and they you go in to try to get sober and they put you on you know prozac or ssris or benzos and um and it just becomes part of the you know the 
the um, a profit center. For the There's an alcohol pill that's coming out soon that makes you puke if you drink. It's called Jaeger. Called tequila. Yeah, just eat the worm. I'm just always so uh, but, curious because it seems like something that, you know, addicts to me are always the most effective people on the planet, the smartest, most big hearted people on the planet when they're sober. But I just see more and more um, addictive substances, you know, and behaviors. Yeah, I, I mean, my, and I get it. My, my brain is like a formulation pharmacy. I can turn anything into a, into a drug. Um, you know, and all the things you say, you know, substances or, you know, coffee or Red Bull or, uh, you know, or, you know, emotional stuff like, you know, pride, anger, you know, lust. Yep, yeah. Gluttony, avarice. Adrenaline, right, adrenaline. Right, gambling. I mean, because gambling, I mean, I look at, you know, Instagram and I go, these are just slot. This is a slot machine. It's the same thing. But I, I also think that, like, you know, there's such a thing as positive addictions, you know, work and, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. So it's but, you know, the government getting involved, is that overstepping or am I? No, I mean, you know what? My kind of. I guess you'd call it a moonshot program or, um, or the, you know, the Peace Corps program. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm going to start these healing centers all across the country in rural areas Amazing. right now. The the. Um, you know, the big industry in rural areas in this country, the only industry in a lot of the rural areas is prisons. And we, we had 106,000 people die of overdoses, mainly fentanyl last year. That's twice what the number of kids that died in the 20 years in the Vietnam War. So we, are, we have two Vietnam Wars a year that are now happening in our country because of addiction. Plus, you've got all the suicides and, you know, all the other... Uh, depression and this disintegration, the mental disintegration, uh, you know, so, uh, I think there's 120,000 doses every year of, of um, SSRIs, another 120,000 of Adderall, but so people shouldn't, you know, lose hope. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start these, um, you know, work with a nonprofit community to start these farms, essentially, with organic farms. Where people grow healthy food, they awesome. live, um, and it's based upon something that I saw a relative of mine uh, went to a place in Italy called San Padrignano's, which is a um, which is a community where they reparent you and teach you how to be part of a community. Awesome. And um, and there's no there's two thousand kids who live there. It's free, completely free. Awesome. You just have to make a long-term commitment. You have to commit to four years. It's like college. Great. Um, you, uh, there's no cell phones. There's no screens. Ooh. You actually have to talk to other people. And then everybody is taught a skill. So they have a, they have a furniture factory. They have uh. a wallpaper factory. They have one of the greatest bakeries in Tuscany. They have you know, world-famous bread. They have a vineyard that makes some of the finest wine in Italy. They have uh, they have dog kennels where people uh, can you know board their dogs and and you learn how to take them. And they have the same thing for horses and all these other and people come out. My um, uh, they they make purses, they have handmade purses for Dila Valley for Prada for Gucci. Mm. Um, and they make money from selling this stuff. It pays for half of their budget. And um, and That's these amazing. kids, you know, learn how to live in communities for the first time. 
and they are, you know, they come out completely recovered. Oh, um, so cool. I'm going to do start these all over the country. And, you know, we're seeing that what we're seeing in this country, the disintegration of any sense of community and you know, any and sense of pride. People say on Instagram, we self-love and da-da-da. in order to build self-esteem, you have to engage in esteemable actions. Yeah. Build that, something. I exactly. made this. I built this. Uh, I trained I got this dog. Up and I went to work and I put in a full day's work and Life's I showed up on too time. Too easy. That's did. it. Right. Integrity. Building integrity. Building, right. Small... I told the truth when it was hard and all of that stuff that kids aren't learning today. And um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really want to try to restore this sense of community in our country and you know, you're, people are going to be living with people who are Republicans and Democrats and all different colors and uh, and figuring out how to, you know, reestablish the bonds of community in our country that are being you know, destroyed right now. We we need to focus a lot right now at this point in our history and self-healing. Yep. And uh, we need to recover a lot of these kids who are being lost. Where are we on billionaires? Because, you know, I was reading yesterday, every now and then I need to sort of get into the wormhole of, of Bill Gates's new venture. And I was reading about the appeal he's putting on Costco apples. He's covering Costco apples with some something, some, some, some <laughs> schmegma condoms for apples. I don't know if he's just jealous that he didn't make Apple, the software company, now yeah. you have to buy every last Apple. He bought you know, I don't know much about Appeal, which is the name of it, but I don't eat those apples because, you know, why would you, if you can help it? But it makes, the, it gives, it extends their shelf life to like a month or something. And then he bought Bragg's, which is the apple cider vinegar, which is a whole, you know, sort of medicine a lot of people would take if they don't want to take Robitussin or NyQuil or the, all these other things. And he puts Appeal apples in that now. <laughs> You know, so it's a full time job just to keep track of, you know, what this guy's up to and then owning the, you know, potatoes for McDonald's. There's no way potatoes aren't that delicious. There's something up with these fries. Like, is he owns the. Uh, I thought J.R. Simplot. Can we look that up, Pat? Because I think he's got he owns farmland for McDonald's potatoes. I bet you he still buys the potatoes from J.R. Simplot. Red River Trust, an entity associated with Gates, bought the acreage located in the northern Red River Valley from three Campbell brothers. According to Spudman, Gates now owns 14,000 acres of farmland. Columbia Bays in Washington State, where potatoes are grown to eventually become McDonald's French fries. So he's just on that French fry trip. Wild wild to me yeah like i go back and forth like you know on elon musk it's he's what? he's he owns he's the biggest owner of mcdonald's he's the biggest owner of coca-cola he owns um he's the biggest owner of caterpillar well caterpillar is the trucks that farm the land yeah it's like john yeah. deere's competitor canadian national railway he owns railways well that he got from warren buffett i think so that we can't leave if we need to because of all the GMO fries. He's going to keep us in if, if his GMO mosquitoes start attacking us. There's no way to get to Canada. I mean, this guy's wild. I don't want to put on the tinfoil hat and talk about the chemtrails and mosquitoes. But is there is the government, is there a role, if any, in terms of regulating not just corporations, but these billionaires that just seem to be? Well, I don't I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Gates. But Gates, me, if you're single, I'm available. But also we need to handle you. <laughs> <laughs> you think it would be worth it even for 50 billion well i would justify it as i'm going to get on the inside 
and dismantle this monster. I'll take one. I'll jump on this grenade. I'm going to go in there, make him fall in love with me, and I'm going to stop appeal. <laughs> I'm going to stop. You shouldn't have told your plan on that. <laughs> I know, stupid. <laughs> or should I have? Right? Do you think there's a certain amount of money that just corrupts the brain? Is this addiction gone wild? I don't know. I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about AIDS because I wrote a book about him. Yes. But, um, and he had, there's patterns to his, you know, to his strategy. He calls it philanthrocapitalism, which is that you, and, and I, you know, I'll tell you, he did this with common core curriculum where everybody gets, you know, is taught kind of to learn my Microsoft programming when they're is, is trained in, in doing that so when, the, when they leave school when they're in school when they leave school that they become customers um he did this with the with the green revolution in africa which he financed he and the rockefeller foundation and the green revolution was about converting africans away from traditional like sorghum and beans and plantains and the 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 sort of sustainable agriculture that they had uh, that they had developed over twenty thousand generations, and switching them to GMO corn, um, and he owns the GMO corn because he owns a big chunk of Monsanto, and he owns and then Cargill, which he brought in to do the supply chain, and the deal that they make with Africa is that if you switch to global commodities. Then we will uh, we will not only supply you the fertilizer, we'll supply you the pesticides. We will, uh, and then we will buy the commodity at the end of the season, and we will use it in our products for McDonald's, for Kraft. Mm -hmm. He also owns Kraft, Um, and Coca Cola, the the corn syrup, and the Coca Cola, etc. So that was kind of the, with the Green Revolution. And, and now, as a result of that, there are 30 million additional Africans who are living on the edge of starvation. And during the, uh, during the COVID, we shut down. So now all the, now the people in Africa, we stopped importing all their corn. We stopped importing the, the thing, you know, so all the, the promises of globaliz- globalization that we made to the African people back in 1996 um, when Clinton was president and Gates was driving the foreign policy, um, those promises all got broken because now that corn was left in heaps on the on the docks and it wasn't being shipped. And there were ten thousand African children dying a month of starvation. Uh, the lockdowns really destroyed that whole illusion of, of globalization. But you know, it it was a money making enterprise for Gates and the vaccines. The same thing. He gives the money, gets tax deductions for giving the money to the WHO. Mm-hmm. He gains control of the WHO. He, he, the WHO pays for finance the health ministries in virtually every country in, Latin, in Africa. Mm. So he can then say, as a condition of getting that money, this is what WHO does. As a condition to get that money, you have to show that you vaccinated a certain percentage of, the, of your population. It's right. a milestone, and but and the vaccines that they're buying are gate are owned by companies that Gates own. Oh, it's this system where, you know, at the end, the punchline on almost all of his philanthropic pro, uh, projects are that he ends up making money. Oh, I don't look into his head and you know uh, and and speculate about why 
he thinks the way that he does, but he did the same thing with Microsoft. Microsoft was, uh, you know, it was a monopoly. It's to control every aspect of vertically, vertically integrate and control every aspect uh, of the of the domain of, of the landscapes and, and, you know, be able to monetize um, philanthropy to make it, to make yourself richer. It's the revenge of the nerds. Whatever girl <laughs> rejected him in high school, it is on you to come back and sleep with him and fix, close this loop, whatever it is. It just terrifies me. I'm just going to jump around a little bit. You know, when I think about sort of, uh, you know, the carcinogens in the water, I mean, you've been fighting this your entire career, um, pollutants in the water, microplastics, poisons. Does the government just have no interest in prevention because um, they're not on the hook for our health care? Well, I think what um, the the answer to that is that the reason that that stuff is allowed because the food industry controls FDA. Mm -hmm. So it's a captain agency. It's like all the other issues that the, um, they're not, you know, FDA was supposed to protect public health, uh, but it's actually become a sock puppet for the industry that it's supposed to regulate. Mm. Uh, that's uh, now, are you, are you, do you, did you go to West Virginia to school? Or? So my grandfather, West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, he worked in coal. Um, oh. You did a documentary called The Last Mountain, which yes. I sobbed the entire way through. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I know that your father had already sort of started. Um, yeah, my family was deeply linked to West Virginia because West Virginia primary, Back in 1960, only a few states had primaries, and the West Virginia primary was critical because West Virginia had the lowest number of Catholics of any state, hmm. and it was notorious for uh, its anti-Catholic prejudice. Um, I, you know, before my uncle ran, Al Smith had run, who was the governor of New York, and he was very, very popular at first. And then people found out he was a Catholic, and it gave rise to kind of a re-emergence of the Ku Klux Klan in the country, and uh, and native, you know, nativist bigotry, hmm. and it uh, and it killed his presidency. So there was kind of a a uh, uh, let's say a belief, a consensus that a Catholic could never run for president of the United States. And when my uncle ran during the primaries in 1960, he had to prove that a Catholic could overcome that prejudice. And the place that he had to do that was West Virginia. Mm. So, you know, everybody agreed if he ran West Virginia that that was, um, that, that showed that he could get any, you know, votes from places that were traditionally anti Catholic. So my whole family, my mother and father, disappeared into West Virginia when I was, you know, six years old. Whoa. And um, and there were, you know, they, members of my family shook the hands of literally everybody in West Virginia during that election. And they uh, they put a huge effort into this state. And then they won. And that was a turning point in the campaign. And then the other thing that happened is my uncle, at a, on a last-minute impulse, he had been invited to speak to the... Um, I, the I think it was called the Protestant or the Evangelical Ministers Association in Dallas, mm -hmm. and he gave this famous speech. He went down there and he gave this famous speech that they didn't ask me, you know, my religion when I when they when I 
And they sent me to war in the Pacific. I didn't ask my brother's religion before he died for our country because his brother Joe had died during the war. And, um, you know, he gave really this extraordinary, uh, I'd say, tour de force about the importance of religious freedom in America. And um, and it and he got a standing ovation at the wow. end, and that kind of put the the issue behind him. Well, I mean, Wes, there's also a complimentary documentary called Hillbilly to yours um, about what happened, you know, with Trump and Hillary. Hillary said, yeah. you know, we got to get rid of coal. She said, and quote, you guys did the best you could to keep the lights on, but it's time to move to clean energy. And by keep the best you could, they died. They, guys, yeah. they went down there. They never came back. They died. And then Trump put on a hard hat and he yeah. went to Appalachia. So, you know, it's such an overlooked area, um, you know, something that is so close to my heart. Also, you know, for people to look at West Virginia as this backward area, it was the first woke state. They said no to slavery. John Brown said, no, we're not doing this. Yeah, you know? they were anti-slavery. You know, and now it's thought of as this backward area, such a, you know, we've got this like third world country right in the center. You know, we're going to spend all this money on Ukraine. Meanwhile, why aren't we rehabilitating West Virginia, like, you know, in terms of, you know, you know, clean energy, nuclear energy, all these new energies, like what can we do in order to heal the traumatic legacy of coal while making sure coal miners are still taken care of, still have jobs, but also transitioning to something that's not going to create such um, incredible pollution, toxic air. I mean, I grew up drinking poison West Virginia water, so it probably explains a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um. And well, yeah, and I mean, you know, if you look at that film, I did, my sister also did a, a, a film, I think it was nominated for an Academy Award, my mm-hmm. baby sister, uh, called American Hollow. And it's about, um, you know, it's about life in West Virginia. Um, but, yeah, and, you know, Cheryl went to school in West Virginia. I didn't know that. Uh, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> she went to the University of West Virginia for a while. That's why she's America's sweetheart. Yeah. You know, that state just it just means so much to me and it's so forgotten. And I just feel like politicians tend to not go there. And it really breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, in the, the strip mine, one of the things that strip mining did, which is now called mountaintop removal mining, mm-hmm. is it really kind of broke the UMW, the United Mine Workers in West Virginia, because the strip industry was not unionized and they don't even advertise for jobs in West Virginia. They go down to Myrtle Beach, they go down to um to uh to states that are very, very anti union um to get workers. And you, you know, it used to be that uh, that you uh if you if you take mine from under the ground, mm-hmm. it it's very labor intensive. So when my dad was uh fighting strip mining in West Virginia back in the 60s, there was uh, 112,000 unionized miners in the state. Today, I think there's only 11,000 miners, and they're taking a lot more coal out of West Virginia, but they're doing it very, very now capital-intensive. They use these giant machines called drag lines that are 22 stories high. I've literally flown under one in a Piper Cub um, they and then they used hundreds of tons of ammonia nitrate explosives. They in West Virginia, they detonate the equivalent of a Hiroshima nuclear bomb every week to blow the tops off the mountains to get at the coal seams beneath. And then they take all the rubble and they plow it into the river valley. And you know they've buried twenty two hundred miles of rivers and streams, all illegal. 
Um, but they get away with it because you know how the government is in West Virginia. It's owned by the coal industry. Correct. They pay for schools. They pay for the yeah. parades. They send food to your house. You know, and one of the most despicable things they did, I can speak for, I know Sinclair Oil, is they would pay their workers in vouchers to the Sinclair store oh, yeah. so that they couldn't build wealth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an old scam. And companies store. And something maybe I'll text Cheryl about that we could work on together because um, I know she... Um, uh, obviously I was making movies now and getting sort of more behind the camera and producing is I was like, you know, what? why aren't we shooting movies in West Virginia? It looks like Narnia. We could shoot Lord of the Rings there. We could shoot all these incredible, yeah. you know, drag. Why doesn't, you know, uh, um, what is it? Game of Thrones shoot there. I mean, it looks like New Zealand, you know, like let's put money back into our small towns. Like what a great way to do it. So I'm emailing with the tourism industry. I'm like trying to figure the fil- local film industry, West Virginia, one of them that runs tourism is a Hatfield and the one uh, that runs films a McCoy <laughs> and they uh, won't talk. Well, you know, I, I lived, I, I lived in Alabama for almost two years. I lived in a little town called in Lowndes County called Hainville mm. was 22 miles south of Montgomery. And I, the guy I lived with was a guy called Sweepy Russell. He was a rodeo cowboy mm. and he was driving home one night and I, I he'd been drinking um, on, and it was, and he went past the exit. He must have blacked out or passed out in the car. He hit the back of a U-Haul trailer and knocked it over the the front of the car. And it, it, it was a, it was a family from uh, from West Virginia that was moving to Florida, and they had all their worldly possessions in that, and they were in a station wagon. And luckily, he hit this. U-Haul and it cushioned the blows. They didn't know what he got hurt, thank God. Mm. But I went there the next day to help them clean up the mess because all of their possessions were all over the highway. And I we came on a high school yearbook and every single person in it was either called Hatfield or McCoy. Ha- so, obsessed. <laughs> yeah, the same thing. Totally obsessed. Um, but you know, um, you, you're talking about the landscapes in Appalachia. And it, it's interesting because it's the richest ecosystems in North America. And the reason for that is during the Pleistocene Ice Age, which was 20,000 years ago, there were two miles of ice over where I lived in New York, over the Hudson Valley. Mm. And the rest of North America became a tundra. So there were no trees left. And the only place that the American forest survived was in Appalachia. And then when the ice withdrew, North America was reseeded from those Appalachian forests. So um, the typical forests in this country um, on the you know, East Coast forests, like in Vermont or Georgia, has three dominant tree species. In Appalachia, there is 80 because wow. just the richness of that ecosystem. So it's literally, it's the mother ecosystem of all of North America. It's the richest, you know, more species per cubic meter than any other place in North America. And it's really a crime that we're cutting it all down. We've cut down these coal companies, Peabody, Consul, Massey, have cut down uh, 1.4 million acres. The flattened the 500 biggest mountains of West Virginia are gone. Mm. Uh, they flattened an area larger than the state of Delaware, 1.4 million acres. And it's, it's a sterilized ecosystem after that. So, and then they buried all the rivers. It's really, uh, if people, if Americans knew, this is the Purple Mountains Majesty. This, mm-hmm. These are the landscapes where 
Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett from so much of our culture, the bluegrass music, NASCAR racing, all of these, you know, these iconic parts of American culture. Racial equality. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And um, when I'm talking about this area, it makes me hopeful. It, um, you know, makes my heart expand. It it does uh, remind me of of one thing that last time I, I visited someone that was horribly injured and his whole family was injured from coal said something um, that broke my heart. He said, if they hadn't taken all the coal by now, we'd probably have diamond mines. You know, like they're taking these, you know, literal uh, natural resources. Well, you know, my father used to say about West Virginia, it's the richest state in the country, mm-hmm. um, but it has the poorest population. It goes, it competes with Mississippi for having the, you know, the poorest population every year. They go back and forth. But, um, and it's because, the, you know, the mines, I mean, Massey Coal is not locally owned. Uh, Peabody and Consul are not. They're all owned by Wall Street. Oh, the you know, the, the coal is being stripped mine from the people. And all that, those coal fields were purchased by, you know, by hustlers who went in there and scout what they call scalawags mm-hmm. and, and carpet packers went into the state uh, after the Civil War. And they would pay people, landowners, for the subsurface rights to their property. And if you're a poor landowner who's starving and they say to you, um, you know, somebody says to you, there's coal under here and one day somebody may mine it, we want to own, you know, it will pay you money Mm. that right in the future. And you think it's going to be a tunnel mine that's not going to really disturb your your use and enjoyment of your property. Mm. You take the money. So it was all sold. It was all bought. And then it was consolidated and sold to these really three giant companies. And um, and then they came in and said, well, actually, now we're going to actually blow your farm up mm. to get at the coal. And people would say, you can't do that. Um, and they'd go to the West Virginia Supreme Court, which is owned by the coal industry. That's right. And the coal industry said, yeah, if you got to get at the coal, you can blow up the farm now. Even, so, I want to say, five, six years ago, Elon Musk tried to bring in a Tesla factory with union labor, and they chased him out. He was like, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. You know, because they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even let oh, him go in. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely, it's it feels so hopeless sometimes, but they do show up and vote. And one thing I will say is, um, we proudly say the word redneck here, um, you know, because, of course, that um, dates back to the Battle of Blair Mountain. Where yeah. uh, the the labor uprising, where everyone had a red handkerchief, you know. So every now and then, in this sort of moment where no one's allowed to say anything, and these words, you know, we say this and that. I say I'm proudly white trash and and you know hillbilly and um, a redneck. People are like you can't say redneck. I'm like you think it's you made up some other term for it, but it actually, we're in West Virginia, it means you're a hero. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the Battle of Blair Mountain was a uh, was a battle. Uh, it was the only time in American history when U.S. Air Force bombers have been deployed against American citizens inside America. And there was 20,000 union protesters on Blair Mountain who were trying to get decent wages. And uh, and the government, uh, the coal company, which owned the United States government at that time, Mm. I got them to deploy the United States Air Force in in its in its earliest years. One of the first actions the United States Air Force was bombing uh, and and strafing miners, striking miners in West Virginia. Oh, that's real, you know, corporate capture. Dark Water, that Mark Ruffalo movie is about, you know, after coal, then came in Dupont. Then I have umbrella insurance specifically so I can talk about Dupont. <laughs> 
because I had my business manager because I'm always like, DuPont spilling chemicals in West Virginia. He's like, can you please take that down? Um, but, um, you know, and then it's just over and over again and the chemical spills. And now the, you know, the opioid crisis, it always just seems to go straight for Appalachia every time. Yeah. So that uh, movie was made about my case, which was, that, you know, suing um, DuPont on PFOAs, which are a flame retardant, and they were uh, they called C8 at the time. And they is it were Teflon? Making, is that? Well, uh, it, it's probably, it's in Teflon, yes, and that's why Teflon, you know, was making people sick. Because when Teflon starts, you should never use a Teflon uh, coated pan because if it if it starts to smoke when it heats up, it volatilizes the PFOAs and then you inhale it and it's, uh, you know, it's making people very, very sick. Um, but it also is in the water and it poisoned 10,000 people in that part of Ohio and West Virginia. And, uh, you know, we sued them and we, we ended up winning the three lawsuits and, and settling for the, you know, 10,000 uh, 10, families there. Um, I also brought a case against DuPont in West Virginia, and I did the final arg uh, the closing argument in the case. And I think, and it was in Spelter, West Virginia, mm. where DuPont was running a zinc smelter and had poisoned the entire town, knew they were all poisoned. They, there, there was actually a memo in the case where they said, we need to t tell these people, here's a press release. And then DuPont met and said, let's not tell them. And because they're, you know, they're, they're, people were saying, you know, the executives in the company say we need to tell them. So they stopped drinking their water because we're poisoning them all. And here is a model press release that we're going to use to inform the town. And then the executives said it's better not to tell them. And they let them drink it for another 20 years. And when you went around that town, it was you could look at people and just say, "These something's wrong here. The tour guides, there were tour guides that were getting thyroid cancer of the New River. And, the, you know, yeah. uh, the people that would canoe, swim in the river. I mean, a lot of people that I went to school with, their kids had thyroid cancer. I mean, it's just, it's beyond comprehension. Yeah. And do you think part of the reason they were able to get away with that is because it was a lot of Italians, it was a lot of Scotch-Irish, they looked at them as immigrant labor at the time? Or I'm trying to get away. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how much of that there was, but probably. Yeah. They were, um, you know, I think a lot of them were World War I veterans um, who had gone, I mean, West Virginia has more Medal of Honor winners, I think, than any other state. Uh, despite the small population, West Virginia and Puerto Rico, I think, are the highest uh, concentration of Medal of Honor winners. And there was this Scotch-Irish population that was, you know, very, very, um, uh, had fought in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it became kind of a tradition to, you know, to be, um, uh, to be, you know, sort of part of the, uh, this kind of Scotch-Irish tradition to go into the military and, there's a great uh, book called Born Fighting about that. Yeah, a Jim Webb. Yeah, book. yeah, that's my ancestry. Yeah. So whenever somebody's like, why do you always have to be so contrarian? <laughs> I'm like, this is just my ancestry. I don't know what to tell you. I just, um, and. Uh, it's like uh, uh, the, the definition of a well-balanced well Irishman is having a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> but Jim Webb's, you know, Jim Webb was a United States senator. I think he had seven generations of uh, of war, of, you know, awarded war heroes in his family his son who is a marine in iraq is running veterans affairs for my campaign wow that's so cool 
I'm letting you go because I know you have a million things. One thing I have not, by the way, I love your podcast. Um, oh, I didn't want to ask you any questions you've already answered on there. Um, but uh, I cannot recommend it enough. It's sometimes just 30 minute bites, total game changer. Um, obviously, you've done some amazing podcasts with Rogan and Lex, et cetera. One thing I haven't heard, though, uh, is how you propose to Cheryl. When I, I proposed to Cheryl, first of all, I went and asked permission of Larry. Right. And that was, <laughs> but I went, I was in Florida and we were in a, a sort of a, a, a mangrove. We were on the uh, we were on the banks of the St. John's River, and we were in kind of a you know the, all these uh, southern oaks with the with the uh, Spanish moss coming off of them. with her her nieces and nephews and her daughter, and they asked me if I was going to marry Cheryl. <laughs> and I'd already made up my mind, so um, I said, "Yeah, do you want to see me propose to her?" And she, they said, "Yeah." So I got down on my knees and no ring, anything. Just <laughs> uh, they took a picture of it, which is, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I didn't have a ring on me at that point. I so it was I real love. One. It was real love. Yeah. Okay, okay, <laughs> we get it. You have real love. Thank you so much for coming by. I don't want to keep you. I don't want to be selfish with your time, but I'm just such a big fan of yours, and I hope I didn't. Uh, make, I'm a huge fan of yours. I hope I didn't me. make you repeat too much. Oh, let me just tell you one more thing. Uh, oh, it was very. It was. Uh, it was mainly new stuff. So that's really an accomplishment. I um also wrote my senior honors thesis on the postmodern implications of Oliver Stone's JFK. So this day was coming. Regardless. Wow. Yeah. 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 Oh, we need to come back and talk about that another stuff. time. Yeah. yeah. But that has um, been a very long uh, obsession of mine for, you know, my my dad was onto this way before. Um, also played Harvard football. My dad. Oh, really? Yeah. We have lots of weird centric things. Oh, God, he would be 77 right now. Right, so he was 10 years younger than my dad. Yeah. He got asked to leave because he would fight. Fighting. <laughs> he was born fighting. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> that's our thing. <laughs> oh, anyway, next time I come back, maybe you'll have some family photos. Yes, we'll have to. In this oh house. God. The fact that he came and he's like, You have no photos of anyone in this house. He's like, Is this a stage house? <laughs> like like Tom Cruise has that Scientology house. It's just has no it's a fake house. It's so sad. Yeah, I know. I've got horses. I've got Well, this room, I mean, the people who are watching this, this room actually has a lot of character and imprint on it but the rest of the house could be <laughs> it's kind of austere yeah, there's, yeah. very i wanted to be very simple very calming and then here is just the total this is like the inside of my brain just complete chaos and uh stuff that fans sent and just you know all the rigmarole. roll so thank you for coming by i end these awkwardly and as always don't ride elephants i always end saying remember when bob barker said spay new to your pets at okay. the end remember when he would say that at the end of every price yeah. right spay new to your pets it made a really big difference in um, awareness about it. So I was like, let me pick one thing to say. And so I say, don't write all of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so don't do that today. Thank you. Uh, so it's too much. late for me. 